Well, great to be with you tonight. I uh, hail from the great metropolis of Baltic, South Dakota, which is uh, about 45 miles south of here. And uh, like uh, Luke said, I'm one of the pastors at River Community Church in Del Rapids, a small town, about 3,000 people, I think, 3,500, something like that. And uh, I'm also one of the directors and administrator for a program called the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship, which is a radically church-centered theological and ministry training program that aims to prepare men for vocational ministry, pastoral ministry in the context of the local church. And so I uh, kind of have a dream job, for me anyway, in that I get to uh, get to do a lot of pastoral ministry and get to preach and teach and disciple a lot and uh, help, help on the elder team of our church, but I also get to... Uh, Hang out with guys like Adam Lefave and, and others of his ilk who uh, are gunning for uh, pastoral ministry and um, looking looking to be trained that way in the context of the church. So um, I'm really thrilled. I'm just so excited to be with you tonight. I, uh, I love love college students. Uh, you're at such an interesting and unique place in life, and uh, and I'm just going to pray and hope that uh, the Lord will move powerfully in our time tonight. And so. Um, I don't have a particular text I'm explaining this evening. This is a little bit of an unconventional message or sermon or whatever for me tonight. So uh, uh, I appreciate it if you just pray with me again so we can ask the Lord's help and we'll dive in. Okay, Lord, thank you for uh, the opportunity to be together tonight. Thank you for each uh, man and woman here and your work in their life and uh, wherever they're at, God, whatever they've come bearing on their soul this evening. Uh, rejoicing or in pain or whatever the case may be, I pray that you would now bust them richly and give us a, uh, a great, um, administer a great, uh, a great balm to our souls from your word. I pray that you would help us to stay firm and focused in the scriptures and help us to not uh, waver to the right or to the left, but rather to understand them rightly and to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I understand that you are uh, walking through kind of some of the major headings of the attributes of God uh, in your time on Wednesday nights. And so I, uh, Luke said, I kept, uh, could basically have my pick of the litter of them. And, uh, and so I thought, well, why not? Let's go, for, let's go for the sovereignty of God. And what I mean by God's sovereignty, if you haven't thought about that term uh, a lot lately, we might contrast it to God's omnipotence on, on one side. You know, we talk about God's omnipotence. If you've grown up in the church, maybe you went to Sunday school, maybe you went to Bible camp, maybe you still do those things, and maybe you've heard uh, the the talk of God's power, God's omnipotence, by by which we would mean by God's omnipotence. Maybe you've talked about this already in Wednesday night. I, I don't know any quit, but maybe you're going to. By God's omnipotence, we mean you know God's ability to do whatever pleases Him in accordance with the with His character and nature, right? Um, so God has, you know, we little kids often say, God can do anything. God can do anything. God has all powerful, you know, God, God can do whatever, he, whatever he wants. Right. And we would look to Psalm 115, three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases or Daniel 435, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his sand or say to him, what have you done? Right. So that's what we mean by God's omnipotence. And that kind of addresses that old canard, right? Can God make a rock so big? You maybe heard this in elementary school as you were, you know, giving your, your defense of the faith. Uh, I think I heard this in 10th grade speech class, actually, talking to a kid. Uh, well, can God make a rock so big he couldn't lift it? 
<laughs> you know, and like, oh man, ah, you got me. I'm going to renounce my faith, right? Um, <laughs> right? Can God, or, or could God make two plus two equal five, you know, that, that sort of thing? And of course, it, with an, a proper understanding of what we mean by God's omnipotence, the answer is really pretty easy. The answer is no, he couldn't. Uh, because <laughs> that's not what we mean by omnipotence, the ability to do absolutely anything the mind can conceive, Right? Even something illogical or sinful or against the nature of God. That's not what we mean. We mean by God's omnipotence that he can do whatever he desires in accord with his nature. Which, of course, is nature being, as we know from the scriptures, holy and, and uh, righteous beyond all fathoming. And uh, as the creator of logic, no, God can't make two plus two equal five. That would violate the very, uh, <laughs> the very, very fabric of reality that's not in his nature. And that's what these texts say. Um, these atheist gotchas, uh, you know, kind of depend on a faulty understanding of God's omnipotence. But we're not here to talk about God's omnipotence. I'm just setting this up to contrast with God's sovereignty, right? Because they're really closely related, but uh, yet have a slightly different nuance. By God's sovereignty, we ha- what we mean is God's kingly application of that power, right? So he has all power to do as the scriptures say, whatever pleases him, according to his will, no one can say to stay his hand or say to him, what have you done, right? He has all power to do whatever is in his mind to do, uh, you know, in, in, within the realm of his character. And sovereignty then has, the, has to do with the application of that. And so I would say God's sovereignty is, looking at the Bible, his kingly application of his power to rule providentially over everything that falls under his dominion. Just like, uh, you know, whatever falls into God's sphere of authority, he has uh, an application of his power to rule that dominion. And that's what we mean by God's sovereignty. And so the question for us tonight then is, well, then what is it that falls under God's dominion, right? What is it that comes underneath his authority and how does he exercise that dominion? And to do that, I'd like to just sort of give you a biblical overview. Um, This is far from comprehensive, I think I put the word omnibus on your on your handout, which just means you know a collection of everything related to something. <laughs> but uh, but this is by far and away not an omnibus. This is mere, just just scratching the surface. But I want to kind of give us a, a brief overview of what God is sovereign over according to the Bible. What falls under His jurisdiction? And so let's launch right in. I'm going to do rapid fire. Uh, I'm not going to give you time to look up these passages. I'm just going to read them, um, read them as I have them, and, and they're on your sheet for you to follow up with later if you're really interested. And again, these are mere, um, mere representative examples. This is far from comprehensive. For probably every single one of these categories, we could multiply passages beyond reckoning. <laughs> well, maybe not that far, but uh, you know what I mean, right? So but here's some representative passages. So one thing that the Bible says God is sovereign over is, interestingly enough, the weather. Uh, Job 38, 22 to 24. The Lord, this is the Lord speaking to Job kind of at the end of his trial. And he says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth, (laughs) right? Uh, This sort of rhetorical questions to a towering Job now as he recognizes his place as one standing before the Almighty God. And, uh, and so the Lord says, um, and, and lots of other places in Job, describe this sort of sovereignty over even the weather that the Lord has in his jurisdiction. Or Psalm 147, 8 and 16 and 17, it says, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He gives snow like wool. 
He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? These are fitting verses for South Dakota, uh, or North Dakota, where I spent a lot of my growing up time, which is even colder. You wouldn't imagine that coming four hours south from Fargo to Sioux Falls area made that dramatic of an impact on the climate, but it's pretty dramatic. North Dakota is like the gulag. It's like Siberia. Uh, and so it's, it's appropriate to keep these, uh, keep these verses in mind as before we uh, grumble against the Lord because of weather. But anyway, um, God is, the Bible paints a picture of God as sovereign over the lives and deaths of all creatures. Matthew 10, 29 and 30, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Have you ever thought about that verse? Like sparrows. Birds we shoot in the outbuildings on our farm, right? Because <laughs> uh, they're a pest. Uh, God, uh, under God's dominion, is even the fall of insignificant birds to the ground. Such is their life in, in his hands. He is, uh, is, Jesus indicates that these are under the watchful care and sovereignty of the Father. Um, Psalm 104, practically the whole psalm, but some excerpts from verses 10 through 30 says to the Lord, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. So the psalmist is at exquisite pains throughout that entire psalm. I can't read the whole thing tonight, but uh, to, to paint a picture of a Lord who is actively uh, upholding and sustaining the entirety of his created order, including the whole animal and plant kingdom. Um, but more, the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms falls under the purview of God's sovereignty. Daniel 2.21 says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Uh, which, if you remember anything of the context of Daniel, Daniel is in, a, uh, in exile in a hostile, a hostile pagan nation in Babylon, right? He and his people have been taken away violently uh, to a place that res- neither respects nor fears their God, and, uh, and he's dwelling under the dominion of this ruler. And yet both Daniel and, interestingly enough, later on in the, chat, in the book, Nebuchadnezzar himself confessed that the Lord is indeed the sovereign one who is, orchestrates the nations and their rule. Um, Isaiah 44, 28, the Lord says of Cyrus, who is the Persian king, uh, kind of the superpower that came on the scene toward the end of their time in exile. God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. <laughs> the Lord used this king who knew not one whit, probably, of the God of Israel uh, and was concerned only for, presumably, the, the power and fame of his own name and kingdom, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever this was, 2,700, 2,800 years ago. Um, the Lord uh, says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose. The Lord is even using this pagan king to orchestrate his purposes for his people. Or as Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Um, seemingly random events fall under the purview of the, of the authority of God. Um, 
We have the lots being cast throughout the scriptures. If you ever heard the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, maybe you've um, noted that every now and then God's people uh, cast lots, some sort of game of supposed chance to, uh, as it were, discern the will of the Lord. Uh, they had the, the priests had the Urim and the Thummim, those, some sort of tablets or something in the in the garment of the priest that where they would uh, we're not sure exactly but maybe they would cast them or consult them somehow as a way to to understand what the will of the lord was uh, so and, and they understood that to mean that the lord was directing even the seemingly chance you know machinations of of uh, you know, these things that they, they'd sort of cast to the air or whatever uh, to, to order to know what God wanted. I remember in Jonah 1.7, um, and when, they're, when the sailors are distraught and they're like, ah, what are we going to do? We're all going to die. We need to figure out who's responsible for this storm. And, you know, what a weird thing to do, right? But uh, how should we figure this out? Oh, let's throw some dice and see, what, like, you know, see who draws the short straw. They're probably the one. Uh, and it says the lot fell on Jonah. Right, the lot fell to Jonah. Well, we, the reader knows <laughs> that that's not just random. Oh man, stinks for Jonah. Now they know. You know, now the secret's out. Right? Obviously, the narrator has has in mind for us to understand that God, just as God appointed a fish to to swallow him, and God appointed him to go and, pro, and prophesy to Nineveh, the Lord had orchestrated even this. Uh, plainly enough, is Proverbs three sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord, right? So next time you're playing, any board gamers here? Next time you're playing board games and, you know, you get a good roll, you can say, yes, thank you, Lord. And, and when you get a bad roll, you can say, Lord, I take the good with the bad. Thank you, even yay for this and whatnot or you know, whatever. Never mind. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, God is sovereign. Here's a harder one. God is sovereign under the purview of his authority is disaster and calamity. Amos 3, 6 does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Or Isaiah 45, 5-7, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or Isaiah 36, 26, and 27. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded. Um, now, I know immediately that rises in your mind, as it does in mine, objections. And we'll talk about those in just a sec. But, uh, but for now, hear what this says, right? The Lord determined this long ago, planned from days of old, but he now brings to pass to make fortified cities crash into ruins. Um, God is, the Bible paints a portrait of the Lord as sovereign over the lives and affairs of humanity and individuals. It says in Exodus 4.11, remember when Moses, um, Moses kind of has that little argument with God when, when God tells him to go be his, you know, instrument to lead the people out of, out of Egypt, out of exile, or uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, Moses kind of puts up a fuss and says, I can't talk, send somebody else, whatever. And the Lord says, Exodus 4.11, who made man's mouth? <laughs> Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Or Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Or Psalm 139, 16. The psalmist says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, 
the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Or James 4, 13 through 15 in the New Testament. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Um, in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, I think, a lot of theologians and Christians were took, took to using the letters DV in their correspondence with one another, which stood for the Latin, I don't know if I pronounced this correctly, you homeschoolers can correct me, but uh, if it, uh, Deo Volente, right? God Deo. willing. Deo. <laughs> Deo Volente, God willing. So they would conclude a lot of their letters or their plans or just in their correspondence with the letters DV as a way of, uh, I think, keeping in mind this, this truth from James 4. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this about. Now, I don't think we need to be legalists about that and say, um, you know what, I'm going to, Lord willing, I'm going to go to the bathroom and I'll be right back, <laughs> you know, or something like that. I don't think that's probably the intent here. The intent is that we, that we just live mindful of the sovereignty of the Lord over even the commonplace affairs of our lives, over everything. Um, uh, the Bible seems to paint a portrait of the scripture, uh, the, uh, the portrait of the sovereignty of God, even over as uh, regards the election of some to salvation. And so, um, this is a little harder, perhaps, for some of you to stomach. But um, Romans nine, uh, chapter fourteen, or nine, or chapter nine, verses fourteen through twenty-four, uh, seems to say this really explicitly, uh, and it draws on the example of Moses and Pharaoh, and says, "What shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy." For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And that's what we say, right? That is our question. How can God hold us responsible for, for what he hasn't, you know, elected us to be or do, Right? That's our very question, and Paul anticipates it. And he says, verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is, say, well, what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience? vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even among even us whom he has called um so we could spend an entire semester just unpacking that chapter but we're going to move on um ephesians 1 3 through 6 says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And if that was hard to stomach, then this last one, perhaps, is this the last one? Not quite. This second to last one is perhaps even, even harder. 
the Bible shows, uh, explains quite clearly that even the most heinous sin to ever be committed on the face of the earth, the most grievous act of any human being of all time that could even conceivably happen, namely the crucifixion of the Son of God, falls under the purview of God's authority and sovereignty. And so we have, for example, in Acts chapter 2, uh, and and remember, this is—I mean, this is Paul just giving it to him straight, right? Uh, not Paul, uh, Peter. Acts two, um, twenty-three, saying, "Men of Israel, hear these words: Je- Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." So you get that he says, "You guys killed him." You're responsible for that, and yet it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Or Acts 3.18, it just goes on. Um, It says, uh, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Then verse um, 18, now what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Or uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 29. Uh, again, uh, the, uh, the apostles praying, and they say, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so it was the understanding of the apostles that even this most grievous, heinous, wicked thing that could happen, the crucifixion of the divine son of God, who is utterly innocent and pure, and indeed God's whole plan of redemption was worked out in accordance with the, the sovereign plan of the Lord. Um, and indeed, we asked what falls under the authority and jurisdiction of God's sovereignty, and the answer really, according to the Bible, is everything. I've been enumerating specific things here, but really the Bible just makes it plain that all things fall under the purview of the Lord's sovereignty. Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Or Lamentations 3.37-38, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Or Romans 8.28, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so, um, speaking biblically, uh, that's how I would um, try to collate at least some of the major headings of what God is sovereign over as described by the Bible. Um, Now you might uh, object to some of some of those verses, you might uh, say, well, we need to read that in context or whatever, and I would absolutely agree with you and say that we haven't, if we haven't done the work of exegesis by reading each verse in its immediate context and, and striving to find out how it fits into its place in the particular literature and book that it was written in and whatnot, I'd say you were exactly right, that we do need to do the hard work of exegesis of every single one of those in order to come to an accurate understanding, and yet, uh, by way of proof texting tonight, as it were. Uh, that's, I'm just going to leave that exercise up to you. But uh, I want to deal with a few of the objections that arise in your heart and my heart, I'm sure, as we th- think through and talk these things. But before I do, I just want to address something. 
based on what I've tried to sort of overwhelm you with verses, <laughs> um, based on that, the, the, more, the most important question I think is, is this what the Bible teaches or not? Right? That's really the most important issue, right? Because I know what right away pops up in our minds in response to these things is, but what about, or, but surely not, or something like that, right? That's the, at least in my heart, in my mind, I'm, I'm right away thinking, but doesn't that mean that this, or doesn't that mean that that? You know, like I'm trying to think of all these loopholes, all these ways around what seems to be the plain teaching here, right? And those objections are really important and we need to deal with them. But I would argue for you that maybe the first question, the more important question is, is this in fact what the Bible is saying? And if so, then aren't we, as followers of Jesus, the crucified and risen one, aren't we obligated simply to believe it? And if you struggle to believe it, I would wonder if you would ask yourself why. Is it that you are really truly troubled by the philosophical implications? Because there are many. But is that really the heart of your, your difficulty with these things? Or is it maybe something more personal than that? Is it perhaps because these things are an affront to your pride? Or to your supposed autonomy, right? And I would say your autonomy and my autonomy is the illusion that we have control and personal sovereignty over our lives and affairs. Isn't it maybe that we think we're gods of our own lives? And that when there's a rival claim made of who has true control in the, over the life, that we bristle and we flex. And so I would wonder if you would just first ask if you've ever repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you do that, as I would urge you to, that's to enter a relationship of submission. To enter a relationship with God where you acknowledge that God is God and that he's right in whatever he does, because he's God. And that's how the Bible explains who he is, is that he's God and whatever he does is right. It is right because it flows from his very character of rightness. <laughs> and if you do believe in Jesus as your Savior or have come to that place and you acknowledge that God is God, then he has the right and authority and control, and frankly, you and I don't. And henceforth... If you enter that relationship, you live with God as your God and his will as your highest aspiration and communion with him as your very highest joy. Um, so I just want to put that out there first of all, but let's deal with some of the specific objections that I know you're maybe thinking about as I'm thinking about. One is, um, maybe this is probably the big one, right? If God's will of purpose, and we don't have time to get into if God has two wills or God, there are different uh, distinctions of God's will as described in scripture. I would say that there is, but uh, if God's will of purpose is the ultimate reason for everything that comes to pass, as these verses seem to plainly portray, doesn't that make him responsible for evil? And if so, then isn't he in one sense indistinguishable from the devil? Or isn't his righteousness and his purity compromised? And it says pretty plainly, right? Out of the mouth of the Most High, both good and bad come, and so on and so forth. And uh, friends, this is just not an easy thing to answer. Straight up, this is not just an objection that we poo-poo away <laughs> and, and push under the rug. This is extremely hard. This goes to the very heart of everything and all reality. It has caused many people to discount and turn their back on Christianity altogether. 
And it can be profoundly personal, especially if you uh, personally have experienced traumatic evil in your life, which a group this size, I'm certain that many of you, uh, or perhaps at least some of you, have experienced grave evil against your person, against you. And maybe you've asked, how could God allow this to happen? Or how could God do this to me? And I don't make light of that question. That's really serious. And I know this has to do with the very nature of reality. And so what I would try to say as an answer in a stab in the right direction, I hope, to countering this objection or trying to help us think through it, is that biblically considered, what does the Bible say, right? It says that God is decidedly not the author of evil. If we know one thing from the scriptures, we can, we can know and agree, right, that God is not the author of evil, despite his will being the ultimate source of everything that is. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good. Genesis 1.31, God saw all, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, right? And so then where does sin and evil even come from? How, this is the question of the problem of evil. If you took an intro to philosophy class or if you're just even, if you even thought about the nature of reality, you've thought about the problem of evil. If God is all powerful and all good at the same time, if he's all sovereign and all good at the same time, how do we explain evil's existence in the first place? Where did it come from? How could it be? Is this universe dualistic? Like, like are there two ultimate sources of all reality? God, the good, and then the devil or his bad counterpart, the yang to the yin or whatever? Like, are these both, are, like, are they in flux, in conflict, and one sometimes overwhelms the other, and the other sometimes overwhelms the one? That's not the picture that the Bible paints, right? Where then does sin and evil come from? Um, the great theologian Augustine argued uh, some 1,700 years ago, um, this is an interesting way of thinking about it, I think, and I think it's somewhat helpful. Argued that uh, sin and evil don't actually have their own existence, uh, such that God isn't, you know, God didn't create sin or evil. Rather, um, they reflect the absence or the perversion of good. It's sort of like how darkness, what is darkness, right? Uh, in one way, it's simply the absence of or the obscuring of light. Light doesn't depend on darkness at all. But darkness completely, it has no reality aside from the existence of light, you know? And so it is with, Augustine tried to argue, so it is with sin and evil. They themselves, in their essence, are nothingness. They're not created by God and not, um, you know, thus not uh, to be, you know, accounted to him as the cause of them. Um, and so that's, I think, one helpful way of thinking about this. But another way I would want to try to address this objection is well, consider the alternatives. Uh, if this isn't the nature of things, if both, even though we maybe don't understand how, God is not fully and completely sovereign and fully and completely good, right? If that's not the case, what are the alternatives? It's either we accept by faith that God is who he says he is, he's in control of all things and yet utterly without sin, or we have to say there is some power, some force, some personality that God isn't sovereign over that can thwart his purposes, that can mess with his will, that can, um, you know, inject chaos into his, into his order and plan, right? 
And if that's the case, then really we can't trust that God's going to win in the end, right? What, what hope, what confidence, what foundation would we have to be able to say, oh yes, in the end, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Like we sang tonight, heaven and earth one day shall be one, all right? God, it says in Revelation, God will one day dwell with his people, um, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, uh, and uh, now the dwelling place of God is with man, and we, the sun will be no more for the everlasting light of God is our sun, right? <laughs> what confidence do you and I have to say, Yes, this is true. I believe this. This will happen if there is an un, like there's a radical at work in you know thwarting God's purposes and plan. That doesn't fit biblically, right? But that's one of the only other alternatives to simply accepting by faith that God is who he says he is, both in control of all things and utterly without sin and responsible for it. Uh or there is one other alternative I think too. Um there is no God. And this is where most people, uh, if they wrestle with the problem of evil and they come out on kind of the, what I would say is the wrong end of things, <laughs> they come out on not, not accepting the scripture's um, picture of who God is, they would simply conclude there is no God. But what's the case then? If there is no God, if there is no personal God uh, uh, at the heart of all reality, then there is no such thing as good or evil to begin with. Right? It makes no sense to say something is good or something is evil if there is no God, no personal God at the heart of all reality from whom these things flow. Right? Who's to say that something is evil? If there's no, like, if there's no authority, no, um, no source of these things at the very heart of all reality. It makes no sense whatsoever to say that something is right or wrong or good or bad or evil if there is no... Uh, if, if the God of the Bible doesn't exist. And so in one way, when atheists or those who reject the Christian worldview try to argue that something is morally right or morally wrong, they're borrowing our worldview. Don't let them get away with that, right? They are, they are stealing from Christian faith in order to try to argue that something is right or wrong. But they have no ontological grounds to make that claim if they reject the God of the Bible, who is from all eternity, past, present, and future, the God who is all sovereign and all good from whom uh, everything flows. And so um, th those are the only alternatives and they don't give any answers whatsoever. Like, why not kill yourself if, if there's no God at the heart of all reality? Why not live a life of everlasting despair? Why live at all? Why die at all? Why, why do anything? There is no compelling reason to answer any question unless the God of the Bible is who he says he is. Um, and so uh, the alternatives are, are far more, um, far harder, I think, to make sense of reality than, uh, isn't it just better, doesn't it just make the best sense of the data, really, to affirm what the Bible affirms, that God is so sovereign over evil that he's even able to twist it and exploit it for his own good, sovereign, holy uses. Uh, and I would argue that this is the storyline throughout the Bible. Think of Gen the story of Joseph in Genesis, uh, right? Joseph, as a young man, is hated by his brothers. They want to kill him, but instead they only sell him into slavery, thanks to an act of mercy by Reuben, right? And they sell him into slavery. He goes, as things start looking up in Potiphar's house, when whammo, false sexual harassment accusation, and he's tossed into prison, right? Like, what, what must he be thinking at that point? God, 
You had my own family sell me into slavery only to bring me here, prop me up for a few you know, months or years in Potiphar's house, and then throw me into a, a, an Egyptian prison. And same thing happens there. He rises up through the ranks. It's clear that God's with him, whatever, whatever. Things are going pretty well. And, uh, you know, pro, you know f- interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. And, oh, yeah, sure, I'll get you out of here when I'm restored to my position. And he forgets about him for years. What must Joseph be thinking? God, how could you do this to me? Again and again, right? Over and over, things just go badly for Joseph. And then finally in Genesis 50, and you know the story, right? How he, God uses him and in his interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams to establish a, a food system, a food preservation system to, in order to prepare for the seven years of famine. Joseph basically single-handedly saves not only Egypt, but his own people and basically the whole ancient Near East because of uh, the wisdom that God had given him, raises him to second in command, gives him a smoking hot wife, you know, and all that kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that part, but anyway, he gives him a wife, all that stuff, prominent position and, uh, and, and kind of and uses them to save his own family from starvation. They all come back. They're all groveling at their feet. And remember when they're terrified at the end of the book, they're terrified when Joseph's dad dies. And they're like, oh man, Joseph's going to kick our butts. He is just going to wreak havoc on us now. His revenge is nigh. And remember what he says in Matthew, or sorry, Matthew, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's what God's in the business of doing, friends. That's what the that's the portrait of the Bible paints of God's sovereignty over evil, right? That no matter how dire and awful things appear to be, God yet twists it apart from from away from the intent that it originated out of and yet twists it for his good, holy, awesome, God-glorifying, and for the good of his saints' purposes. And that's just the storyline throughout the Bible. Consider God's use of the Babylonian exile and the Persian king Cyrus in the life of Israel to bring them out of exile and back into the land. Consider God's use of Samson and his evil and his persistent rebellion against God's purposes for his life in order to bring out deliverance from the Moab, uh, Moabites? Philistines. Moabites, I can't remember. Philistines. Um, <laughs> or the linchpin, right? The coup de grace, the ultimate perspective of this. Consider God's own plan to save a people for himself. God's plan to save you. To use the most heinous sin, the worst evil imaginable, the murder of the innocent, divine Son of God, sinless, holy Jesus. To use that to atone for the sin of lost humanity. To use that to take away your sin. So those are some of the things I would try to answer that objection with. Uh, Understanding, of course, that philosophically it still hasn't unlocked every puzzle. It still hasn't opened every door and turned every key, right? Understand there's still philosophical difficulty there. Which leads us kind of to a second objection. You might say, if this is the case, Ryan, if this really is how things are, isn't this just fatalism, (laughs) right? Isn't this incompatible with free will and human responsibility? How can God command stuff of us and expect us to do it, (laughs) right? How can God even be displeased by disobedience? How can God have the right to say, uh, you know, you shouldn't have done that? 
if it's his will at the back of everything to begin with? Why do anything at all? Why try? Why evangelize? <laughs> and uh, I would try to say to this, this isn't an easy question either. And I would maybe try to say to this, we probably can't see how that all fits together philosophically. Uh, I make no apology in standing before you tonight and saying I have really no idea from a philosophical standpoint how it works that God is, God might be fully sovereign over the lives of every individual and their choices and everything and what they do and yet is able fully to hold us accountable for the things he commands of us. I don't really know. But what I do know, I think is absolutely plain, is that the Bible's explicit testimony is that both of those things are true. That God is absolutely sovereign on the one hand and human beings are responsible and their choices matter. And so I would direct you again to Romans chapter 9 where Paul anticipates this very objection and says, after saying that God raised Pharaoh up for this purpose in order to, in order to ruinate him and, and show his power and mercy to his people and bringing them out of slavery, um, and Paul anticipates our question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's our question. And so Paul, tell us, tell us, what's the answer? How can that be? And do you notice the answer? He doesn't answer like he doesn't give us the philosophical explanation. He doesn't spell out how, they, how it can be. Instead, he says, essentially, he says, shut up. <laughs> Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, the answer is, um, friend, you're not in the position to question the Lord on this. You're the, you're the creation, right? Get a grip on your place. You're, you're, you don't have the right or the authority to demand this explanation from, the God, from God. Your, your place is to uh, humbly receive and to humbly accept what he says as plain and true. But also we see throughout the Bible that it maybe also has to do with God's use of means and agents. In other words, God ordains the means and the agency as well as the ultimate end. So you might say, um, why do you cut your hair? Why do you get your hair cut? Like, don't you think, of a, don't you think a sovereign God would simply ordain the length of your hair? I mean, uh, isn't it isn't to cut your hair to go, you know, to, to try to undercut God's plan? Like to undercut God's sovereignty, uh, and you know, you say whatever length of hair God wants me to have, that's what I'll have, and you know that kind of thing. Well, everyone understands that that's dumb, right? Everyone instinctively understands that that's not the nature of reality. That's not the way the Bible set up. That's not the way. That's not the way the Bible explains things. The Bible expects us from from almost the very first page to the end. The Bible is plain in that God expects us to. Um, hear his word and to strive to obey it and to not fret or worry about whether or not we're, uh, you know, ordained to or, or whatever. Like, that's just not even in the purview. That question doesn't even come up uh, when God's, except in Romans 9, when God says, <laughs> God says, here, here I am, here's my will, do this. Uh, I call you to do this. I call you to uh, repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your savior. Do that. Uh, make, make that choice as it were. Um, and so we have to say, I think, that God 
uh, expects us to make use of the means available to us and that we're responsible for failing to do so. And so he is just and he is fair and he is right to hold us accountable. And yet how that is explained philosophically yet remains a mystery, at least to me. Um, I don't think that means that we should ignore that question entirely or not try to figure it out, as it were, but that we shouldn't drive, our, drive ourselves nuts trying to figure it out because we know what uh, we know what God does ask and require of us, namely that we would um, make use of his means that he's given us. So, you know, why evangelize? Why, if you're a Christian, why do you want to tell other people the gospel? If, you know, a holy and omnipotent God... Uh, you know, calls those to himself whom he's elected from before all eternity. Well, for one, the holy and omnipotent God who loves us and has proved himself to us over and over commands us to do it. Isn't that enough? Right? Like, isn't that enough? Because God says to. But more, it's also because God uses the means of human obedience and exertion to accomplish his purposes. And this is scriptural. Um, Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Why evangelize? It says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And now how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so in other words, God uses, God ordains in his grace and power and love, ordains to use the means of little old me and little old you going out and telling other people the gospel. Isn't that phenomenal? Like, the God who could just convert the universe, you know, by a simple nudge of a few neurons or whatever, by a simple movement of the Holy Spirit, which would be nothing to a sovereign God, right, could convert the entire universe in an instant, uh, and yet he resolves and chooses to use the means of you and me going forth to proclaim the gospel. It's a glorious thing. It's an incredible thing that we get to be a part of God's miracles. Or Philippians chapter 2. Why You might say, why try in the Christian life? Why should I read my Bible? Why should I pray? Why should I go to church? Why should I go to a clip? Why should I serve other people? Why should I love? Right? If, you know, whatever will be, will be, and it's all just fatalistically determined. Right? Well, Philippians chapter 2 says, uh, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You catch that, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do the hard work of the Christian life in growing in communion with God. But understand that when you do that, it is God working in you both to will. So even your choice to do it is God working in you. And to work, even the energy you're exerting is God working in you. And remember Paul said, yet not I, but Christ through me, right? Even that is God's working in you for his good pleasure. And we don't, we don't have to fret about that. We don't have to drive ourselves bonkers trying to figure out how it fits together philosophically. Our place can simply be, man, God rules, <laughs> right? God reigns. Let the earth be glad, the, the song said tonight. And I, I can just humbly, gratefully, worshipfully submit to that incredible truth, to this incredible God. Um, which leads me to just a few uses now, briefly. I would say that um, this leads us to worship. right? This leads us to worship. If you get so hung up on the philosophical difficulties of this thing, it's going to mess you up. 
Uh, And yet, here's the great part about this for you Christians. You don't need to. You don't need to. You can simply affirm what the Bible affirms and then rejoice and delight in the depths and riches of God who is beyond all human understanding. That's just a freeing place to be. And you know what it leads to is an attitude of utter delight and and being swallowed up in the glory and grandeur of God. It leads to one who is a worshipful person. As Paul says in Romans 11, 33, after explaining another incredible thing, part of God's plan, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right? So that's, that's, just, that's just where you and I can be happy to be is to worship and adore this God for, from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. We don't have to kill ourselves thinking about, oh man, how does it fit together philosophically? Oh man, I don't know how it can be that we can be responsible and yet God can be sovereign. Like We don't need to lose ourselves in that labyrinth. We can just worship this God. And if anything, this drives us to our second use is humility, right? If it's true, then you and I are, we're given, I think, in this doctrine of God's sovereignty, a simultaneous vision of, on the one hand, just how small and insignificant and trivial and ethereal we are, (laughs) right? And at the same token, what glory and majesty God has imbued us with. So in view of the sovereign God, we are surely nothing, right? Mere specks, the tiniest bits of dust that can accomplish nothing of significance whatsoever, And yet it is equally true that God loves us with an everlasting love, right? God graciously calls us out of our darkness and our sin and made a way for us to be saved through the death and resurrection of his own son. And he calls us to work at spreading this good news throughout the world. He calls us to know him. This is astonishing. And if anybody should be humble, if anybody should not think too highly of himself or herself, if anybody should take the stance of a servant in the world, it ought to be the Christian who believes in the sovereignty of God. And the last use of this uh, is that this should comfort us. And I wonder if this is maybe the one that I, I long for the most in my own life and in your life. Remember Psalm 46 psalm that inspired a mighty fortress is our God <laughs> at the pen of Luther it says God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam though the mountains tremble at its swelling there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the most high God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Like, if this is true, if God is who he says he is and he's sovereign, then you can sleep like a baby. Doom scroll no more, right? You're on Twitter, you know, doom scrolling, right? You just, you scroll because you can't get enough of the doom. Like social media is just a, a continual perpetual factory of doom. And sometimes people get locked in at doom scrolling, right? It's just one piece of contentious bad news after the other and we get locked into that sucked into that doom scroll no more believing this doctrine frees you to take a radical view of every hardship every struggle every weakness you encounter in this life and you are freed to see those things instead as opportunity for the display of God's glory and goodness and your eternal good and that means every bad thing every rotten thing that happens to you is an opportunity for those who love God and are called according to his purpose Romans 8 says to have God God's power and grace manifested in them. And that doesn't mean it doesn't still hurt. Doesn't mean it's not still bad and wrong. Doesn't mean that we don't still pray for relief and deliverance. But it does flip our perspective. So instead of slamming your thumb with a hammer and then loudly and bitterly cursing, we can instead think, I can't wait to see how God is going to use this for good in my life. That's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. Nobody thinks that way. But we should, right? We should if we believe in a sovereign God. You know, one time um, I was a youth pastor in Emory, South Dakota a number of years ago. And uh, one time, one morning, I remember I lived about a block and a half away from our, the church where I worked, uh, that, where my office was. And one morning, you know, you ever have one of those mornings, you just wake up and you're just a snot. Like you're just in a foul mood. Nobody better get in my way. Everything sucks. I hate this. Why don't people give me the respect I'm due? You know, like you ever have a morning like that? Well, I had a morning like that. And, and so I was walking. I was just grumbling and whining the whole, the whole walk. And then right there in the middle of the road, uh, for no reason whatsoever, I tripped and fell on my face. <laughs> in the middle, middle of the road. My backpack was sprawling. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't hurt, you know, I, didn't, I didn't, don't think I bled or anything like that. But you know, the first thought that went through my mind uh, was, the Lord just struck me down in the middle of the road for being a whiny baby, <laughs> for complaining. Like, now, you could say, well, Ryan, that was, you know, whatever. You could try to explain that away or whatever. But, but in that moment, like, I, my heart just knew. I just knew. That's what had happened. And I also knew that it was right of the Lord to do that. It was good. It brought me to my senses. It snapped me back. It made me think, what, are, what is your life? You are missed. It appears for a little while and then vanishes. And yet you've been crowned with glory and honor, as the psalm says. So, friends, um, I'll conclude this way. Fret no more. <laughs> Stress no more. Sleep like a baby. If you believe in the sovereign God. Victor Hugo um, wrote Les Miserables, um, said, have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. That's the sovereignty of God from my view tonight. <laughs>